Good morning. Today we start the book of Hebrews. Sometimes you say epistle to the Hebrews, but it's really not an epistle. It's more like an essay or a thesis. And the only way we know that it's addressed to the Hebrews, a couple of reasons. Number one, in your study Bibles, if you went, don't turn there, uh, if you went to the Psalms, a lot of times you'd see something like for the musicians or Meshach or something like that. And those things have been in there for so long that some people consider even those titles part of the inspired word. Now, the book of Hebrews, the ancient manuscripts have the phrase to the Hebrews above it. And some people might consider that phrase inspired or not, but it's been there since the early, early, early days. Jesus is better. If you've got that, you've got the whole book. Of course, we're not going to quit there. Jesus is better. Key words, better, all, and once for all. Let me coach you to write those into your Bibles so that when you get into reading it, five years from now or whenever your rotation comes, you'll see those words, better, all, and once for all. And then when you start reading through that book, that'll be a trigger for you. The key word, better. Jesus is better than the prophets. Now let's look at this through the lens of a Hebrew, a belief, someone who grew up in the Jewish faith. And we're going to expand on that some more. They held those Old Testament scriptures very close to their hearts and all of the rubrics and all of the rules and all of the personalities all those things were very very near and dear their hearts and here comes this author and I'm going to claim it's Paul it's been a discussion over the centuries so if I slip and say Paul as opposed to author you understand my bent okay I've often said I'm here to teach you what I believe and why I believe it, and I'm going to give you why I believe it's Paul, and then we can go on, and it'll never be settled forever, okay? The prophets, better than the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and on and on, better than the angels. Now, in the, in the movie Ten Commandments, dun, 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 and the fire comes down and the voice says, I am the Lord thy God. It was Charlton Heston, but they missed the angels that were there. The angels were apart. The angels, they appeared so many times. So Jesus is better than the angels, better than Moses. Wow. Better than the priesthood. And he's going to provide a better rest. Now, if you read those Old Testament, uh, the, the Exodus and the Numbers, they're all talking about getting to the promised land. And a lot of times we have an analogy that, the, you know, the promised land, crossing the Jordans, like crossing into, uh, into heaven. Well, they crossed into Jordan. Guess what? They had 35 city-states that they had to conquer before they got any kind of rest. Well, we have a better rest, a better priesthood. You see the bold there? A better covenant our small group studied the covenants, and we, it, the whole thing culminated on a better covenant. And it's going to tie together the better high priest, the better sacrifice, and that phrase, once for all. Jesus pulled together all those things, all in his personage, and better. 
Faith is a better way, chapter 11. So, a better way and a simple example. One of the differences, one of the many differences between myself and Jesus, Jesus would come up with a parable, and that parable would have so many connections, and you'd have to search for a hole in it. Well, this is a simple example. Who would say they are familiar with the basics of baseball? You're still a soccer man? You don't follow baseball. Okay, then you're going to be my Hebrew. <laughs> if we put that thing up, we said, the pitcher throws the ball, the batter tries to hit it, et cetera, et cetera. Those that are familiar with baseball know exactly what that means, right? Okay. If you don't know anything about baseball and I say the pitcher, what does pitcher mean? Something you pour? If we're playing a, a crossword puzzle, you'd use the word ewer. What were you going to say, Raul? The pitcher's the one. That's because you know baseball. <laughs> okay. The batter? Is that something you make pancakes from? So Paul did not have to describe what a pitcher was or a ball was because the audience was familiar with the terms. Okay? So we go through there. The picture of the batter, the, the, the first base, it's not an army fort or something, and a fly ball is not a round house fly. What would happen to the sport of baseball if one rule would change? Now, we've changed some rules recently. We have a designated hitter. You've got so many times that the coach could visit the pitcher. The pitcher has to pitch to a minimum number of batters. But I'm going to put a, a, a suggested changed rule, and you tell me what you think. How would that change the game of baseball? And those that feel really warm and fuzzy with business, with baseball, how would that change the way you feel about the sport? It would ruin the game, okay? Somebody else has a, a thought? You'd be fine with it, sure. That's because you're... <laughs> okay. What is the impact of the first baseman? Uh, what is the impact of that rule change? Okay, so first of all, you would ruin the game. So that change would not better the game, although we're talking about better. The designated hitter in some, in some people's minds is a better rule, and other people, they're holding on to the tradition of baseball. They're saying, that's a terrible rule. Okay, it's a whole new ball game. Makes most of the other rules irrelevant, doesn't it? All of the strategies, whether it's a bunt or it couldn't be hit and run because a runner could never get to first base, using some of our phrases, okay? And there's a disclaimer. A runner could get to first base if he, was, if, if he was walked, okay? But the point is this. I said, faith is a better way. And to all these Hebrews who were trying to maintain the law, all of a sudden, it flips, and the Bible tells us that Jesus came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. It's salvation by grace through faith and not maintaining the law. It's a whole new ball game. Now, if that rule did change, 
So I'm, I'm, hold that thought. Another example that's going to be closer to your heart, and Willie, this one's going to get your attention too. How would you feel, that's the key word, how would you feel if the phrase one nation under God was taken out of the Pledge of Allegiance or if the whole pledge were taken off the table? How would you feel? Wouldn't like it at all. How else would you feel? Okay, Willie, are you on board with that? How would you feel if those phrases were taken out of the Pledge of Allegiance? You would not be happy. Okay, this is an aside. When you go home, go to YouTube and look up. Everybody know who Red Skelton was? Okay, he was a comedian when things were funny and not lewd or political. Go to YouTube and look up Red Skelton Pledge of Allegiance. And he will take you through every single phrase of that pledge. I'll speak for myself the way I was taught. All right. But now, here come the Hebrews. They were taught to follow the law. They were taught to kill the lamb. They were taught to dress a certain way. They were taught all these different things. And all of a sudden, here comes Paul, who says, I got a better way. So Jesus is better. The better way is the faith. And so the audience, we're talking, like I said, the title was to the Hebrews. That one, that preposition could be translated to the Hebrews or for the Hebrews. The earliest Christians were Jews, right? The apostles were Jews. The day of Pentecost, they were Jews. And then what happened to those Jews in those early days? They were concentrated around Jerusalem. I mean, Jesus was up in Samaria and got the woman at the well, John chapter 4, but they were concentrated around Jerusalem. Then Stephen got stoned, and what happened? It's up on the wall. Stephen got stoned, and what happened to that concentration of Jews? They were scattered, okay? They ran scared. That's exactly right. So there's that word scared, uh, scared. <laughs> there's that word scattered, and in the Greek it's diaspora. Uh, dispersed is where we get that word, okay? It only appears three times in scriptures, and every time it refers to the Jewish people getting dispersed in the New Testament based on what happened to Stephen, all right? Now, that last verse on the bottom, 2 Peter 3.15, we're going to come back to that one because that will help tie into Paul as the author. But John 7, our people live scattered among the Gentiles. They will look at that will word, will. Uh, Acts 1.8, and you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the world. The original audience were Messianic Jews. What is a Messianic Jew? Someone who has inherited the beliefs, the scriptures, the rules, the regs of Judaism, believe, but believes in Christ. But now it's a universal audience. The Gentiles being saved during the early days, they didn't have the benefit of the Old Testament. They didn't have the benefit of picking up all 66 books 
In fact, the Jewish people only had 39, the Old Testament. And depending upon where they lived, their synagogue might not have all 39. So here's Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brothers, keep in mind the title was to the Hebrews. So this is to saved Hebrews, to Messianic Jews. Therefore, my holy brothers, saved brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the author, uh, the apostle and high priest of our confession. We're, it's not till chapter 12 we talk about consider Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. We'll get there unless the Lord comes back. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. If, go back to baseball. If you were a traditionalist and you did not like that rule of the first baseman can pick up the bag and run wherever he wants, you might want to start your own league with that rule out of it. Or you might talk to your kids and say, back in the olden days, this was baseball. Well, let's take that to a Jew and the Old Testament. I've been saved, but I've got all this stuff in my background. I will tell you, as a saved Catholic, there are a lot of things in the Catholic faith that just, it's like, you know, the vampire, okay? I'll give you a crazy example. One time we had the Stations of the Cross in this church. That was exclusively a Catholic thing, and I'm going, Argh! Well, the good news is they didn't do all 14. They didn't have St. Veronica and these, all this other things, so it was okay. But you can just understand how the, the things in the back of my head go up when something that in my background was, was Catholic is brought up. Does that mean there are no safe Catholics? Not at all. There are saved Catholics all over the world. So Paul is writing with a couple of purposes. First, to stop believing Jews from sinking back into the rules and regs of Judaism. The second thing he was writing about was, let's say Sean right here is a saved Jew. And he's probably getting persecuted because that's what happened to Paul as he traveled from town to town to town. And you get your hands on a copy. Of course, as a common man, you wouldn't because the printer press wasn't invented yet. But as a common man, you've heard this stuff. You could use that to talk to other Jews that are willing to listen of how Jesus is the culmination of that entire Old Testament. Now, can I use the book of Hebrews to talk to somebody who's not been exposed to Scripture? Well, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. But just like you knew what a pitcher was, and you knew what a batter was, and you knew what first base was, and you knew what the first bag bag, first base bag was, there are people out there that have not read any Bible at all. And so, a, a different audience. And we're going to come back to that kind of an audience shortly. And Jane is going to be my star. <laughs> now, there's Jane, and there's a young lady in some kind of a show showing off. I, I guess that's a Holstein, right? 
Okay, now let's say Jane was called upon to write something titled Judging Cows, but the audience is the person in the white. Let's say she was also asked to write something titled Judging Cows, and the audience are those people that are dressed in black. And what if Jane was working on a master's degree or a PhD, and she was writing a thesis titled Judging Cows? How would those papers differ? Let's start with the, the, the audience in white. Now, I'd like to think all the anatomy, uh, anatomical parts, you'd use the proper names. For me, a technical term is thingy. <laughs> okay, you would use all the proper analytical, all, all the body parts. <laughs> you would use all the body parts, but what might you put in there? Some tips, okay? Now, would you have to put the tips in for the judges? Not the same ones, you'd hope you wouldn't have to put them in, right? And if you were writing a thesis, to be scholarly, you would need footnotes, you would cite somebody, et cetera, et cetera, okay? When Paul was writing to the churches, it was like writing to the lady in the white. But when he was writing to the Hebrews, he was writing to the people in the black. So if you start reading who's the author of, of Hebrews, what you'll hear is, well, the ideas are Pauline. I had an Aunt Pauline. The ideas are Pauline, but the style is not Paul. Well, depending upon your audience, your style would change. Your vocabulary would change. The author and the audience. Hence, if you did an introduction of Hebrews, an introduction to James, there's James, he says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. He's writing to saved Jews. Now, here's a piece from Galatians that refers back to some meetings that were in the book of Acts, I believe chapter 15. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, Paul, Paul was the author of Galatians, his name is given in the, in the book, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, they to the Jews, all right? So when Peter, now remember several slides ago, I had a slide on there from 1 Peter where I was talking about those that were scattered among Pontus and Cappadocia and everything. Here's 2 Peter, and he uses the word you. Peter, from Galatians, is focusing on Jews. And here in 2 Peter, he's writing to you, the Jews. But what is he saying? He says, in count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to the Jews. Well, all those books where Paul's name is, it, is in it, they're not dedicated to Jews. They're typically dedicated to saved people with Jewish people around them, saved and lost. 
So now we're going to shift gears. We're not going to talk about authors or audience or timing or anything else like that. I said that the, the second key word to take a look in the book of Hebrews is that word all. Now, if you've been in this class, you know all is one of my favorite words. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, as an example. All we like sheep have gone astray. Jesus is the heir of all things. He upholds all things. All angels worship and serve him. He, he sees all creation as salvation for all who obey. Once for all is that other key word. He appeared once for all. Well, that's, that's an interesting word because if you know what the word theophany means, he appeared several times before the incarnation. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar looked in the, for, in the furnace, he said, lo, I see four, and one is, modern translations say, like a, son of, like a son of God. We'll get into modern translations shortly. He appeared once for all incarnate, born as a baby, died as a suffering servant. He sacrificed once for all. You think of the sacrifices that were, were given throughout the Old Testament. Just take one instance. If you want to read about the dedication of Solomon's temple, thousands of animals got sacrificed. Here Jesus was sacrificed not just once, but for all. No more sacrifices. We are cleansed. I want you to look at those other two, both, both in chapter 10. I can't wait to get to chapter 10. We're cleansed once for all, and we're made holy once for all. That points to eternal security. And we'll get to chapter 6, and some people take a look at chapter 6, and they say, aha, that proves you can lose your salvation. Well, if you took that as your premise of that verse then for you to be re-saved, Christ has to be re-crucified. And that's not going to happen. We're made holy once for all through that sacrifice once of all, and we're, se we're separated from sin and to service. In verse 14, I had to quote it, for by a single offering he was perfected for all times. Now it doesn't use the phrase once for all there, but you get the message, a single offering for all those to be sacrificed. So here's the overview of Hebrews. By the way, Hebrews is all about doctrine, and James is all about action. We'll get to James. He's superior in his person, better in chapters 1 through 4. And then chapter 2 through 10, there's a little bit of an overlap there. Paul hones in on a very specific character the high priest. He says that Paul entered into, uh, Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies once for all. And different than the high priest, he didn't have to confess for his own sins first because he who knew no sin was made sin for us. He was the spotless lamb. And thirdly, he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. All of those the high priests came from Aaron, Moses' brother, and down and down and down. He was not from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. And so when you read those chapters, you find that he's a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, who was Melchizedek? 
he met with Abraham. He was both a priest and king, just like Jesus, priest and king. No background, no genealogy. Jesus' dad was God the Father, and we'll get to that word begotten shortly. And that's what chapter 10 is all about. So chapters 1 through 10 is all about instruction. But then chapters 11 through 13 are about exhortation trying to take all this stuff that Paul has proven in his thesis and 11 through 13 become the so what. And we'll probably come back to that slide over the weeks. This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? That was written when Jesus said, in, after he fed the 5,000 in John's gospel, he says, unless you eat my body, you'll have no part in me. And folks that think about that as cannibalism, they left. And the phrase was, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? But this was the point that Paul was making. He said, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. I was a hiring manager for many times, for many years. I have read thousands of resumes. If you've got children or grandchildren in school, tell them that grammar and spelling really matters because as a hiring manager, if I saw a typo or bad grammar, that person was gone. I also learned that there's a difference between a person with 20 years of experience and a person with 20 cycles of one-year experience. And that's what he's saying up there. He's saying, you've been a Christian long enough that you should be teaching this stuff, not being spoon-fed. And in fact, he talks about departing from the milk and going towards the meat of the word. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Now, we're just going to read through these things. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. That I'm going to read it ho-hum because I want to make a point. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful hand. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, if you're reading Hebrews, you just read that, and you said, Okay, finish the chapter. But that's what is included in that first three verses. Jesus was in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God spoke through Jesus. When Peter was on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, uh, he said, oh, this is a special place. Let's build some tents. A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He spoke through his son. He's the heir of all things. And if you read Romans chapter 8, we're joint heirs, and we've talked about this many times, we're joint heirs of infinity, which means we all have infinity if you're saved. He made the worlds. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then you hear, let us make man, let us make man in our own image. But there are several verses that point to Jesus as the actual executioner, the one who did this stuff. 
He's the brightness of the Father's glory. The Bible says no man has seen God at any time and lived. Moses wanted to see God, and God said, hey, you can't look at me face to face, but I'll let you see my backside as I walk past you. And yet, in that 33 years, people were allowed to see Jesus in an unglorified body. Peter, James, and John got to see Jesus transfigured, and either one of two things happened. They had protective glasses on, or Jesus didn't give them the whole thing because they would have been dead, their eyes would have been rotted. It would be like standing in front of an atomic explosion. All things are upheld by the word of his power. The Bible says, I think it's Colossians, it says, he created all things and by him all things consist. That word consist means hold together. When Elijah was fighting with the, uh, well, contending with the, the false prophets of Baal, you know, they killed the two bulls and he called, he said, well, maybe your God is out to lunch or on the potty or, or something. Jesus is not only holding everything together, he's able to hear all the prayer groups. You know, sometimes you have a prayer group and everybody's praying at the same time. And if you stop talking and start listening, it sounds like fancy word, cacophony. It's just chaos. That's just one prayer group. Consider all the other prayer groups. Consider the people that are prayerful in their minds, maybe even right now in this room, and Jesus hears it all. Consider that you're not praying at all, and he knows the thoughts and intents of your heart. Just an amazing, better, almost hesitate to use the word person, because he's more than just a person. He purged my sin. He washed me whiter than snow. He did it once and for all. The book of Romans says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. That should be an assurance. That should be an encouragement. He sat down because he was done with his work. Now there was one scene where he wasn't sitting down. Who knows that scene? Stephen. He says, lo, I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. I figure one of two things is true, and I guess I'll have to ask Jesus when I see him. Either Jesus was standing, at, standing up to shake the hand of Stephen when he showed up, or he's ready to whoop some Jews, one of the two. <laughs> and then Stephen said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. But he was, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, ready to make intercession for us. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I don't have to go to St. Teresa or St. Anthony or the Blessed Virgin or any of those things. I can go straight to Jesus. Here's an interesting thought for you, an interesting question. When I pray at least, I end my prayer with, in Jesus' name. So if I was talking to Jesus, I wouldn't have to say, in Jesus' name. I'm picturing myself either talking to God the Father, maybe the entire Trinity. So when somebody says, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, who are they talking to? Because if I'm talking to Jesus, I don't have to say, in Jesus' name. If I'm talking to God the Father, I don't have to say, in God the Father's name. It's an interesting concept. Like I said, 
the Hebrews have their background, and I have mine. Now, we see all those ten points, and we just finished the book of Philemon. And I made the point, you know, the book of Philemon talks about uh, Paul is writing to this slave owner, Philemon, about this runaway slave named Onesimus, who Paul is sending back and asking Philemon to forgive him. And Paul writes and writes and writes about all these things and all these experiences, and he met this slave, and he was uh, saved under Paul's ministry. And then at the very end, he says, Onesimus. Well, that's what the same style is here. He's saying all these great and wonderful things. No, by the way, his name is Jesus. Same idea. So we're going to go through these same verses. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors. Paul is affirming the Old Testament, not throwing it out. Now, if you have a study Bible, you probably have a column with all these references. If this happens, he's quoting Psalm XYZ. If this happens, he's quoting this and that. If you take a look at that column in Hebrews, you will find more of those references back to the Old Testament than any other New Testament book had to be somebody that was absolutely schooled in Scripture or he had a PC study Bible like I have. But I was too old for, it was too old for PC study Bible. So it had to be somebody who had all those Scriptures committed to memory. That would be Paul. It wasn't Peter. He knew how to fish. It wasn't Matthew. He was good at math. It was Paul. affirms the Old Testament, doesn't want to fight about what the, is in the Old Testament. In fact, he wants to hold it up. He wants to emphasize that it's the same God. You know, we talk about baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. He's baptizing somebody on behalf of the Godhead. When Peter was baptizing in the early chapters of Acts, they said, I baptize in the name of Jesus. Why not the other two? Because those people already recognized the other two. They were not recognizing Jesus. And Peter's saying, he's the guy. Jesus is the one. In the olden days, God spoke to his people in various ways. It may have been natural phenomenon like earthquakes. It may have been, in Elijah's case, it wasn't an earthquake. It wasn't the lightning. It was a still small voice. In Ezekiel's case, you know, he had the, the wheels turning. In Daniel's and Joseph's case, it was dreams. In Abraham, somebody showed up. In Balaam, it was a donkey. Can you imagine that? If I had a donkey that could talk, I think I'd say I'd take and sell him and say, hey, say something to this buyer. <laughs> God speaks to a donkey every Sunday right here in this room in this hour. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. He was appointed the heir of all things, and he was spoken through his son. The same chapter of the Bible says, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And we received of him grace upon grace, wave upon wave. It just kept coming, just like at the beach when the surfing is good. It's wave upon wave, grace upon grace. We're going to come back to that building process, building up to a climax. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory. In chapter 14 of John, that's right, right underneath where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus' response was, don't you know me, Philip? Even, if I've been, even have I, after I've been with you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And John 10, I and the Father are one. So the process, and those that were in the small group, this is going to be a repeat. The process, keep in mind, Paul is building the foundation of the Old Testament and the Old Testament personalities. And here's Adam. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offering, offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his feet. He's talking about the Jesus that I've grown to know and love. To Abraham, he says, through you all the nations will be blessed. It's not just to the Jewish people, but it's for everybody. And in the book of Galatians, it says, not by his seeds, but by his seed, one person. To David, he says, one of your own descendants I will place on your throne. And we studied that in the curse of Jeconiah, the one who should have been in the kingly line. And because he was not behaving himself, there was a curse put on him that none of his children were ever going to inherit the throne. And you look at that line that came through Solomon, and you say, well, how can that prophecy be fulfilled? Well, David had more than one son, and there was another son named Nathan. And through Nathan came Mary. You can compare the genealogies in Matthew versus Luke. In Micah, he says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler of Israel. We're coming tighter and tighter and closer and closer. Now that come down, comes down to baby Jesus. Now we're going to take a look at the other end of those 33 years. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them on the, to the potter at the house. We all like sheep have gone astray. They pierce my hands and my feet. So although I didn't na uh, name it, we just covered better than the prophets. The prophets wrote about all those different things. And now we're going to shift gears. Uh, I have two minutes. And talk about better than the angels. So first of all, his name. If we had the verse up there, verse 4, it talks about his name is better. Now, there are three angels that are named. You say, well, Lucifer is no angel. Satan is no angel, but Lucifer was. Okay? So now, how is Jesus' name better than those names. The other angels, the other demons, they don't have names. Christ, he was not only like God, he is God. Remember Michael's name is who was like God? He was not only a godly man, but he is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. Not only a light-bearer, but he is the light. John's Gospel, there was a light that entered into the world that came to every one of us. Every one of us was born with a conscience, and that conscience is Christ. His name, on his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm going to finish the notion of name, and then I'm going to quit. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called. His name, 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. Do you have any angels name those things? Do you have any angels qualify for those jobs? No. If you look up that particular website, you, you won't remember the website, so it's just simply Google names and titles for Jesus. That one will give you 101 names and titles, and there's just a taste. And we're going to quit there and talk about angels when we're back together next week.